as we turn our eyes to a new year. I'm thankful the Lord providentially brought us to the fruit of the Spirit, goodness, with all that is on the plate, both domestically and internationally. We think of the sharp political and worldwide divide within our own country, an impending election that promises to be volatile, along with the rise of powerful and evil governments and militias, we anticipate that much evil will continue to be unleashed upon the world. And it will be important for us not to give in to despair or to return evil for evil, but rather to be examples of Christ who was perfectly good, even with those who stood against him and eventually murdered him. We know there can be a lot of confusion about that meaning good. The word can be used in a variety of ways. For example, even in the time of Jesus, we read in Matthew about a man who comes to Jesus and he asks him, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus answered him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. We see that this man's understanding of good is not the same as Jesus' understanding. So definitions are important. We're asking, you know, what does the Bible mean when it uses the word goodness in relation to the fruit of the Spirit? Before we ask that and answer that, let's ask for the Lord's help and blessing in our time together. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. Apart from your Spirit's work to open eyes and ears, we would look at these passages, these words, perhaps with a stain or just ignoring them. So we need your help. And so we ask for that this morning, particularly as we look at this fruit of your spirit of goodness. We pray for your help in this regard, in Christ's name. Amen. This is the sixth fruit of the spirit listed in Galatians 5, 5, 22 and 23. It's part, in this part of Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's describing the fruit, that is, the effects of the work of the Holy Spirit uh, on the li- in the life of the Christian. So let me give you several reminders regarding the fruit of the spirit. The fruit listed is not automatic. That is, it does not grow apart from the effort of the Christian. It's rather the excellence of character produced when the Christian uses the means of grace, such as Bible study, memorization, prayer, fellowship, worship, listening to the sermons, in conjunction with the work of the Spirit of God in his heart. So we need that Holy Spirit, but we also, it's not a magical thing that happens because you just are a Christian. Second, the fruit of the Spirit is an effect. It's not the means of obtaining heaven. It is then the supernatural work resulting from the work of the Spirit of God in the people of God, preparing them for heaven, those who have already obtained heaven through faith in Jesus Christ, the acceptance of his gift of eternal life. So remember that salvation produces good works. It is not obtained by good works. It's been a major theme of Paul's letter to the Galatians from the beginning. Third, this is not a complete list of all the character qualities that the Holy Spirit will produce in the Christian. I've got a list in my office of 49 different character qualities that could be chosen from out of scripture. Uh, So this is just a partial list, but it's a a picture of the bigger character that the Lord is going to produce in us. What does the Bible teach us about goodness? Let's define the word before we look at some passages regarding that. The Greek word used by Paul here is one of two Greek words that are typically used for good in the New Testament. First of all, negatively, let's think of this way. We're not to think of good as something just better than bad, but not great. Like the movie was good, but it wasn't great. 
Uh, that's not the way we're to see goodness. Goodness is rather to be seen as an antithesis of evil. Let me give you a couple examples where we see the fruit of goodness contrasted with evil. First would be even just from the very beginning, Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see the antithesis there. It's not a, it's a spectrum. It's an antithesis. <clears throat> you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. A second example would be in the New Testament, read the parables in Matthew 20. Jesus tells of the workers who went to work at different times of the day, and when the owner paid them all the same at the end of the day, uh, they responded. They felt like they had been given a raw deal. That's when the owner asked them, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things, or is your eye evil because I am good? Evil here is associated with greed and envy, goodness with kindness and generosity. Again, antithesis. Now, as I studied this topic of goodness, there were three topics or three characteristics that stood out that I thought I'd just bullet point for you. We'll get into more of the detail here shortly. The first thing that I noticed about uh, goodness as I studied is goodness is not passive. It's not merely present. It's not inert. Uh, God's, the true goodness that God produces in us expresses itself in action, in good works. One commentator puts it this way. <coughs> he says the English word for good can include many pleasing qualities, but the Greek word that's used here indicates one particular quality. It is more than excellence of character. It is character energized, expressing itself in active good. That's the first thing I notice is it's an active work. Second, goodness is often demonstrated in good works that, be, can, get, that can be characterized as generous in nature. Not merely good or good enough, but excessive in generosity. When we look at this attribute of God in a moment, we'll see that demonstrated. Third, goodness actively seeks to see goodness in others. The earlier commentator I mentioned just a moment ago who wrote that uh, goodness is active also wrote this, goodness does not spare sharpness and rebuke in order to produce good in others. Thus, God can correct sometimes very severely, and it is his goodness in action, end quote. My thinking of Jesus when he made the whip of cords to drive out the money changers in the temple it's better understood as an example of his goodness in actions. Now, it might be contrasted with another attribute that we'll look at, or character quality, fruit of the Spirit, is kindness. Kindness is the gentler aspect of goodness. Lord willing, we'll come to that in a couple sermons. It's the gentler aspect of goodness, where goodness includes the sterner qualities by which doing good to others is not necessarily by gentle means. Now, if we put these ideas together, we can begin to get a clearer picture of what goodness is. When it comes to God, his goodness is the collective excellence of his perfections manifesting in generous acts of beneficence and benevolence toward his creatures. The Bible teaches that the attribute of God is communicable to his creatures. So we can know something of that goodness within ourselves as we walk with God. That is just a stunning thought. So here's our working definition for this morning. The fruit of the spirit of the Christian is goodness is the moral excellence produced by the Holy Spirit in the inner man 
manifesting in acts of bold generosity in conformity to the word of God for the benefit of others. Now, some of you might be writing those down, so I'll just say it once more. And think of this, that's our definition as we work through the sermon. Goodness is the moral excellence produced by the Holy Spirit in the inner man, manifesting in acts of bold generosity in conformity to the word of God for the benefit of others. Let's talk for a minute about God's goodness because, of course, that's the source of all that is good. We read, for example, in Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts him. Or Psalm 25, 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. Throughout the Old Testament, we read of the goodness of God, a pure and a perfect goodness, untainted by any evil or sin. The goodness of God leads then to his acts of creation, which are described as good. For example, we read in Genesis 1.31, God saw that everything he made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So God, who is essentially good, in an act of his goodness, created the world, and the world he created is good. A.W. Pink writes this, All that emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providences, cannot be otherwise than good, end quote. And remember, part of our definition of that is that goodness is generous, meaning that God has given not just enough to keep us alive and able to survive. He's given us far more than that. I mean, just look at a couple of examples of this. Think about the world in which we live in now, how God has just stocked it full of goodness and good things. You think of like a fish pond. We go to those fish ponds where they stock the pond with all those beautiful trout. <clears throat> and you think, well, that just makes it easy. This is wonderful, all this fish here. I don't have to wait for hours hoping I'll get something. The Lord did that when he created the earth and the universe. We have over 18 kinds of metal that we can use or combine to build good things. Think of all the buildings we see, the bridges, and on and on, all the metal things. God gave us all these different kinds of metal with all these different properties. There are 2,000 kinds of fruit. Could he have given us one? Yeah, he could have, but he didn't. He chose to give us 2,000. There are 73,000 species of trees. Think of all the different trees and all the different features of all of them, just how they look just in terms of aesthetics, but also in terms of their use. 73,000. Animal species are estimated to be between 1 and 8 million. They're estimated to be 200 billion galaxies for us to enjoy, each with 100 million stars on average. It's estimated that we can see up to 10 million colors with our eyes. I can imagine that. He could have made it monochrome, couldn't he? Could have been, everything could have just been brown or hazy or, but he did. He chose to give us overabundance, uh, just filled the earth with things and made us with the ability to enjoy that. Did God need to do that? Perhaps you're feeling a bit spoiled when you reflect on that. We could have had manna for our whole lives or only poodles. Although poodles, I think, are post-fall, but that's (laughs) discussion for another time. God's goodness is also manifested in his providential care over what he created. We read in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, the eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy their desire of every living thing. (coughs) Excuse me. 
Stephen Charnock, in his magnum opus on the existence and attributes of God, writes of God's goodness in some depth. He says this, and there's a quote. He is first, not first God and then afterward good, but he is good as he is God. His essence brings one, uh, being one and the same, is formally and equally God and good. Another theologian writes this, God's goodness, like his other attributes, is infinite. But the exercise of his goodness may be limited according to the exercise of his will. And those who receive benefits because of the goodness of God are also in a position to be good themselves, which shows us that this particular attribute is communicable, meaning uh, his other at- God's certain attributes of God are not communicated to us. We'll never be infinite, but some are, and this is one of them, his goodness. Interestingly, the original Saxon meaning of our English word God is the good. A.W. Pink provides some more insight into the goodness of God. He contrasts it with the good in his creatures. He writes this, God's goodness is originally good, good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures are good only by participation and communication from God. He is essentially good. Not only good, but goodness itself. The creature's good is a super-added quality. It is God, uh, in God, is, is his essence. Continuing the quote, he is infinitely good. The creature's good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of all good. He is eternally an immutable good, for he cannot be good, for he cannot be less good than he is, end quote. We read in James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. That is all goodness, all goodness finds its source in God. Of course, God's greatest act of goodness was the redemptive work of Christ in whom the goodness of God is perfectly manifested in Jesus' incarnation, his life, Crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and his eternal and perfect reign over all of creation. And God blessed the original couple with an abundance, all this abundance goodness that we talked about a moment ago. But rather than accepting and thanking God for all that he had done, they and we in them sinned against God. And we plunged ourselves into a deep chasm apart from God's goodness and without hope. But God's goodness didn't stop there. God extended his goodness down into our filth and degradation, and it reached us even there. Listen to these words in Titus with this in mind. For we ourselves were once, also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness And the love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. One more observation we'll make about God's goodness. In Exodus 33, we read that Moses asked God to show him his glory. When God granted his request, what does it say 
that God did. In Exodus 33, 19, we read that God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So when God displayed his glory, when, when Moses asked God to show his glory, God says, I will show you my goodness. <clears throat> but all this talk of God's goodness, of course, is going to raise a question I think we need to address in this context, because there may be some skeptics out there who are asking, how can the Bible teach us that God is good if we look around us and see all the evil of the world? And of course, this is the classic argument that either God is not all good or is he not all powerful. Because if he was both, if he was all good and all powerful, then all evil would be eradicated. But it has not. We see evil around us all the time. So either the argument goes, God clearly is not able to remove it, he's not all powerful, or he's not good. If you've been at Woodruff Road for long, or gone through any of our classes on the, um, in the intro class or the reformers, they've read the reformers, you know that the answer for that is that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that exists. His goodness is neither eradicated nor compromised despite the evil of mankind. In fact, it is possible for both to exist. If we look at Genesis 50, that is our classic passage. You remember this is Joseph when he revealed himself to his brothers. They'd sold him into slavery, and when they discovered who he was, now the second most powerful man on earth, they thought, oh, no, now he's going to get his revenge on us. And what does he say? But as for you, you meant evil. Here's that contrast again, right? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. There's that good and evil. God remains essentially perfectly good despite the evil of men. The New Testament version of this is Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. How is it possible that that can be? Because God is all-powerful and God is all-good. <clears throat> Let's bring this down to a place where we live as Christians. We know that apart from being in Christ, we have no innate moral goodness. That's not a popular thing in our world. <coughs> the very nature of man is contested, of course, in many different places. Most thinking that people are basically good, they've been infected by the world, or something outside of them, it's not an internal problem. The Bible says, no, it's part of your innate nature to be rebellious. Psalm 16:2 says, oh my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my God, my goodness is nothing apart from you. Paul reaffirms this in, in uh, Romans 7:18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Again, I think the explanation from a biblical standpoint then is going to be, how do you explain the good in people, not the evil? We know that as Christians, any goodness that we have is a gift from the Lord to us. And we're to thank him for it. And we put our faith in Christ and we're clothed in Christ. He begins to work in us the very character of God, even his goodness. Let's look at a couple of examples in Scripture. Two people that are described as good. One is Barnabas, described as a good man. We're told in Acts 11.24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. What do we see then in the life of Barnabas that illustrates what a good man looks like? <clears throat> in Acts 4, we read about the believers giving to the needs of others, and it tells us 
that Barnabas participated in that process. It says, uh, Joseph, who is also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You see why Barnabas is called a good man? You see how he fits the description of goodness. He's not content merely to believe. Barnabas sells property. He brings it to the apostles in an act of generosity. But we see further evidence of Barnabas' goodness in Acts 11, where we read this. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So we see, again, demonstrated, additionally, the evidence of the goodness of Barnabas. Not only did he give generously, but he rejoices in the goodness of God in others. The text tells us he was glad when he'd seen the grace of God in their lives. He is, he is outward focused, <clears throat> so much so that he has given the name the Son of Encouragement. Do you know people like that? They're not comparing themselves with you. They're not trying to find reasons to excuse your good works, like, oh, that's just their personality. They just do that. Or, I know why he really did that. Rather, they rejoice in your good. These are the ones that don't come to church solely to insist on encouragement from others or to find opportunities to make themselves larger in the eyes of others. They're not drains of need, but rather fountains of encouragement. Look for ways to build others up, to find ways to minister to others financially, time or through time or service. Goodness in action. <clears throat> the word encouragement that's used here describing Barnabas is the word parakaleo, which means close beside. It comes from the root word that means legal advocate. That's Barnabas. It's no wonder he's described as a good man. Another example of a good person is Dorcas. Uh, this time she's a, a woman who is described as full of good works. Uh, most of you are familiar with Dorcas in the New Testament. We read about her in Acts 9. <clears throat> read verse, verse 36. At Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. Now, what do we see in the text about Dorcas? We see that she's described as a disciple, that she's full of good works and charitable deeds. Obviously, Dorcas was well-loved because we're told that when she died, the disciples heard about it, and they sent two disciples to Peter, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And when Peter came to the upper room, we're told that widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. Isn't that a cool picture? Dorcas' reputation was one of good works of generosity. Aren't you thankful for brothers and sisters like that? They aren't high profile. They're humble, uncomplaining servants of God who quietly plod along and they minister to the body of Christ in some way which God has gifted them. And this is an example, Dorcas, a woman of good works. Well, how do we apply the text this morning? Let me make a number of applications. Remember our definition. Goodness is moral excellence produced by the Holy Spirit and the inner man manifesting in acts of bold generosity and conformity to the word of God for the benefit of others. First application. There are perhaps some here today who have not acknowledged God's goodness. Instead, they prefer to find fault with God, or they just ignore him and his goodness toward them. 
But the Bible warns us about this. In Romans 2, 4 through 5, we read that we are not to despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. He's given you all you need. But in accordance with the hardness in your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. To turn away from that goodness, to ignore it, to write it off, to uh, justify your condemnation of it or to describe it in some other way other than scripture is a condemning act. Second, the goodness of God should lead all believers to praise him. We read in Psalm 107, 8, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and his wonderful works to the children of men. Does that describe you this morning? Do you take time to reflect on the attribute of God and does it lead you to praise him? Perhaps your remaining sin still makes you a bit skeptical. But if that's the case, I encourage you to take the time to think deeply on these truths. Ask the Lord for help in grasping its profundity. And we see this in Romans 1 where it describes the unbeliever two ways. They neither give glory to God nor thanks. The two attributes of the unbeliever. They don't glorify him. What an amazing good God he is. And thank you. Third application, the goodness of God should lead us to trust him. We read in Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust him. That is, because God is good, you can always expect him to act consistently with his character of goodness, to know that he will not withhold any good from you. As we read in James 1.17, as we read earlier, every good and perfect gift is from above. We know earlier also that God's goodness sometimes translates to sternness in teaching us what we need to know. Sometimes in that process of going to heaven and God preparing for us, us for it, it hurts. But that should not drive us from him, but rather to him. <clears throat> His intentions towards you are always, always for your benefit. That truth should compel you towards him, not away from him. Fourth, We know it in the definition that goodness of character results in goodness of actions. Jesus says in Matthew 7, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. If the Lord is transforming you into his image, and he is if you are truly a believer, he's building a character of goodness, a character that will produce good works. We read of this in Ephesians 2.10, for example. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He spoke similar words in Titus 2.14 when he says of Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. <clears throat> Now, good works shouldn't be limited to those who can only benefit us back. We read in Luke 6.35, but love your enemies and do good, lending and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. That's, that's a scripture. He is kind to the unthankful and evil. While we're discussing good works, let me ask the question, can an unbeliever do good works? <clears throat> we know from the scripture that apart from God, there is no good in us. Matthew 7, 17, we just read a moment ago, every, tree brings, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but the 
corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Uh, the Westminster Confession helps us in this in the chapter on good works. It says this, works done by unregenerate men, <clears throat> unbelievers, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in the right manner according to the word, nor to a right end the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make man meet to receive grace from God. That is, doing the good works is not going to earn you any favor. <clears throat> Their neglect of them, this continues in the, in the confession, their neglect of them is more sinful and pleasing unto God. I think that's an important point because we're living in a time of virtue signaling that is just unprecedented in history. There's so many ways to show everybody how wonderful you are and all the good things you do. The media, the progressives are constantly writing, screaming, and uh, protesting about justice and equity. But do they even know what those are? Once again, the confession helps us here. Confession 16.1 says, Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, if the scripture doesn't say it, are devised by men out of blind zeal. Does that sound familiar? or upon any pretense of good intention. <clears throat> no, the unbeliever cannot do good works. His motives, his standards, his goal will always fall, will always fail, fall short of what God intended. <clears throat> so we understand that it's those who are regenerate in whom the Spirit of God is working that can actually do good works. Fifth, and as again, so you see regeneration precedes the good works, not the other way around. Fifth, and this is a tricky one because it's easy to misapply this application, but we noted earlier that goodness is such that it will even be stern or confront when necessary. Paul writes in Romans 15, 14, Now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. The word admonish is to warn. In this case, it's to warn of sin in the lives of other believers. But of course, we have to be careful here. In fact, if God warns us that we are, <clears throat> if we're going to confront others, we have to first examine ourselves. In Matthew 7, we read about uh, the, the necessity to take the, the plank out of our eye before we take the splinter out of our brother's eye. In Galatians 6.1, we also learn about this. We'll look at that more fully later on, Lord willing, as we finish through Galatians. Confronting others with their sin is a tricky business. We have to be very careful when we do so. But so Christians, the good Christian, will not shy away from that responsibility when it is his or her calling to do so. Sixth, be encouraged this morning by the goodness of God. One of the favorite psalms of the Christians, the psalmist David, consoles himself with the truth from Psalm 23:6: Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is unchangeable and he's faithful. His goodness will follow you and bring you to heaven. <clears throat> One closing thought. You mentioned earlier that good deeds are not the means to heaven. Rather, they reflect the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian who's grafted into the vine, we're told in John 15, the vine where Christ or his life flows into ours. So it's in light of this, the believer should not take credit for his or her good works. Think of the warning that God gave in the Old Testament to the children of Israel, those who, when they were going to the promised land, he says, you're going to be, able to be in houses that you didn't build and wells that you didn't dig, and you're going to start looking at yourself and say, look at all the things I've done. 
And God says, remember, he says, where did the skills that you have come from? He says, it didn't come from you, they came from me. In the same way, we're not to take credit for our good works as if they originated with us. They are not just our gifts to God, but his gifts to us. Brothers and sisters, may God grant his grace in building us up in the goodness of his spirit. And may his generous works to us be reflected in our generous and good works to one another. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our oftentimes looking at something like the word good or the topic of good and so underestimating it, making it mediocre. Father, I pray that this morning, in light of what we have seen in your word, that we would elevate that idea of goodness and that we would embrace it, that we would seek out that character quality produced by your spirit as we study your word, as we get to know you and grow in our faith. Father, I pray that that character quality of goodness, that fruit of the spirit, would be evident among the believers here. I thank you for the work you have already done, demonstrating that over and over in this congregation. We pray, Father, that we would not become lax or lackadaisical, but Father, rather to may we be spurred this morning on to even more good works as we love one another in Christ, and we pray in his name.